Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Lit to Lens podcast. My name is Will, and I am with my co-host, Eric. We are here with Krista Avampado, the new, the debut author of Emerson Page and Where the Light Enters. Krista, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. Excellent. <laughs> so It's a cold one here today, but other than that. It's same here. Same here in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to have you back. Um, we had you on probably about a year or so ago, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, for the intro interview before the book was published, but it was being written at the time. And now the book has been published. It was, uh, 10 days, 11 days ago on the first, right? November 1st. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, um, we wanted to have a follow-up interview and see how that went and see how everything's going. Cause it's been a while. Yeah. Sure. So how are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Yes. When I talked to you last November and it was the first interview that I had actually done about the book because the book was still in process it hadn't gone through the, the editing with an outside editor yet and it actually hadn't been picked up by a publisher yet so I was very hopeful about what might happen with it and had gotten some good early feedback from early readers and felt like also just in society and what our country was facing at the time I felt like there was a hopeful story that was needed especially for young people and so I had a lot of hopes and aspirations uh, but a publisher had not yet picked up the book so now since then in the year a publisher has picked up the book um, and the book is now out in the world out in the wild as they say um, <laughs> November 1st yeah so Will and I have both both read it um, it's a great book and I think we'll get into yeah you're welcome um, a little bit of the specifics later but I want to unpack a little bit that timeline. So we talked to you a year ago. Um, you don't have a publisher, but obviously, you know, since 10 days ago, the book is out in the world. So can you kind of run through for us what it was like to be published and, um, you know, that whole world really diving into it, finding a publisher that's right. Um, if you can speak to agents too, I, I'm kind of like curious how this whole process goes. Yeah, so I had, I think when I was talking to you, I was querying a lot of agents, and I believe that I had just queried my dream agent. I was so excited, and she wanted the first five pages and then the first 50 pages, and I was sort of in this limbo period with her about what was going to happen. Um, she ended up rejecting the book, um, which is unfortunate, but I actually just sent her a copy of the published book, so I'm hoping that I'll get it because <laughs> she is still my dream agent. Um, but she sent me probably the nicest rejection letter like you could possibly get <laughs> um, and she had written it and even though she was rejecting the book um I the way that she phrased her rejection and why she was rejecting it was so positive that it still inspired me to keep going so I didn't give up so I queried a whole bunch of other agents um most of them never responded. 14 of them uh, responded with a no. <laughs> and then I had, around the time that I spoke to you, I had met a publisher at a storytelling event. She was a friend of this organization called, uh, was called, um, what was it called? Speakeasy DC at the time, but it changed its name to Story District and they had a big rebranding party. And she was a friend of the person who runs that organization, my publisher now. Um, and so I went up to her and I gave her my live pitch about this is what my book was about. She should really be interested in the book. <laughs> and I was very brazen about it. And she said, yeah, 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 well, send me the book when it's done. Like thinking that, I mean, everyone says they're going to write a book and nobody does it. So at, about the time I spoke to you, I was querying agents and then I also sent the book to her. And so she was the only small press publisher that I had sent the book to. I had done a lot of research and I looked into a lot of different publishers 
Um, I had actually sent it out to other small presses but never heard back. So I think small presses get inundated with authors. And so most of them, I think, get overwhelmed. And a lot of times they don't respond. And so this is the publisher who responded. And she was very excited about the book. I was also living in D.C. at the time. And she is based in Burke, Virginia, which is just outside of D.C. Mm-hmm. So at the time, the, the location was also um, helpful, I felt. Um, and I really wanted the story to be out in the world. This is not the last book that I'm going to write. Um, and so once we, she said she was interested, then we sort of went into a contracting phase. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I kept, the, there were a couple things that were important to me. So I wanted to keep the copyright of the material. So I wanted to own Emerson. Like I wasn't willing to sell her off to somebody else. Um, so that is a little tricky a lot of times publisher <laughs> wants to own the copyright. I also just wanted it to be this one book. So even though I knew the book was a series, um, I had spent so much time nurturing the story that I wanted to see how it went with this publisher for one book and, and then make a choice about whether or not I would continue with her. I didn't want to be locked in. I had had heard a number of stories from other friends of mine who are authors and people I don't know who had written about the publishing process and a lot of them completely lost the rights to their story they lost the rights to their characters um the publisher might not invest in publishing and promotion and then the book doesn't go anywhere and then it's sort of this black mark on their profile um and I just didn't I didn't want to ever find myself in that position the story meant too much to me so those were I mean that's kind of a high bar because a lot of publishers if they're going to invest they don't necessarily want to do that like they're not really willing to just let the author (laughs) keep everything to themselves i also wanted to participate in the editing process in the design of the book cover in the marketing and promotion of the book um and i had a lot of ideas about what i wanted to do and so i still wanted a lot of autonomy but i also wanted to publish so I, i i you know I wanted to have my cake and eat it too and that's not really something that you can do with a lot of publishers and this publisher was amenable to letting me um, letting me do all of that. Now, the flip side is that I've done almost all of the marketing and promotion myself, which I wish was a little bit different. Um, but uh, but I still, I think for the hybrid situation that I wanted with this first book, I think it was the you know the best the best scenario that was that was going to play out. So we didn't actually sign um, until March. And so I had started talking to her in September. So that took about six months. And then I was very adamant about I wanted it out for the Christmas season. <laughs> Again, I was very pushy. Um, so uh, that's actually a lightning speed timeline for to have a book picked up and have it published within a year. Friends of mine who aren't publishing are like, that is insane. It never happens. Um, the publishing industry moves a lot slower. And so that was another advantage of going with a small press for this book is that they, she was willing to morph to my timeline, which was, which was what I wanted. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I want to move back a little bit um, to yeah. what we were talking about in, in kind of the first part of your answer, which was the agents. Um, mm. And you had a dream agent and you were sending query letters. Can you kind yeah. of ex- explain, I mean, I know what a query letter is, but so it kind of explain yeah. what you're doing querying agents and how do you define what a dream agent looks like? What are the different kind of qualities agents have and, and why you might mm-hmm. choose one or, o- over another? Yeah, yeah, so query letters, so essentially what you're doing is you're pitching sort of a dual pitch. So you're pitching the story and you're also pitching yourself, right, of what you have to offer, whether that's, you have a platform, your experience, your connections, your passion for the work. Uh, an agent isn't doesn't want to just take on 
uh, a client so that one book can get published. The idea is that this is a long-term relationship and they're making a long-term investment. So they also have to know that there's enough depth and enough passion and commitment there that they're going to get more than one book out of you. <laughs> Whether that stays on the, you know, in, a, in the same storyline, like mine, which is a series, or if they think that there are many books within you and many kinds of stories that you can tell, and that this isn't something that you decided three months ago that you were going to try your hand at, and then they've invested all this time, and that's sort of a waste for them. So, so it's, yes, the story is important, but it's almost more important to pitch who you are and why you care about writing um, in a query letter. And there's lots of online resources, um, about how to write it, it does need to be concise, so it really shouldn't be more than a page. Um, and you really have to do your research about, so my book is is young adult, um, fantasy, uh, you could describe it as urban epic, you could describe it as action adventure, but you really have to dig into, not all agencies represent all genres, right? So you really have to look for an agency, and specifically for an agent who cares about your genre because their connections in publishing are, are most of the time related to that genre and so you also have there's also a lot of research um, that you have to do as well um, on the agencies and on the on the agent that you're specifically querying at the agency if it's a multi-agent uh, company okay um, so I want, we want to talk marketing now uh, you said mm. you're doing a lot of your own marketing um, yeah. how how has that been and uh, daunting or challenging and it kind of run through that for us yeah, so it's uh, so I have an MBA and I have a business background and I've I've been in business for like the better part of twenty years. So it's not um, it doesn't feel like oh my god I have to do my own marketing. Like I actually like marketing. It's it's my it's part of my profession. Um, I've also been a freelance journalist now for almost a decade. So I am used to having to pitch myself and try to get publications to publish my work or. Um, you know, get them to take me on as a regular freelancer. And so I'm, I'm very used to, to doing that. So that isn't the part that's daunting. It's actually the, the mechanics of it. So you will, a lot of times a, a publicist or, you know, somebody who's promoting and marketing a book will put out a press release and they will just expect the world to come to, well, I wrote the press release and like <laughs> I put it out on the wire or, you know, I sent it out as a mass email to a bunch of people. Um, and it doesn't work. Like, I know I get those queries all the time as a journalist. And I will tell you, unless it is addressed to me as a person, like, unless it says, Dear Krista, <laughs> at the top of the page, most of the time I, I delete it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, I do. Like, I just, because I know it was just sort of this blanket release that went out. Right. And they weren't necessarily interested in me doing a piece on it. So I did try that, um, which got, like, exactly zero traction. Um, so the flip side of that is that then you have to write these individual queries. So you've got to do all of this research. Oh, is this is this journalist or this writer or this outlet right for you? And then I have sort of a standard description of the book that I put together and why I wrote it. And then I individualize like the first paragraph. It's sort of like it's sort of like writing a cover letter to apply for a job. Right. <laughs> like you're doing the same thing. Like you're running a business, you have a product, you have a service and you are pitching it to these people for a specific reason. So it really, what it is, is it's not daunting in terms of the actual work, it's just the time. It's so time intensive. Um, and I've, I'm lucky that I've gotten a lot of, of good press as the book has come out, especially for a debut author, especially for fiction, <laughs> and um, especially because I'm with a small press. If I had gone the agent, big publisher route, if that had worked out for me, or 
if I had been patient for years and years <laughs> before Emerson had hit the had hit the shelves, um, they you know they have great in-house promotion and marketing. The flip side of that is you know somebody like a Simon and Schuster or Random House, you know they take a very small handful of projects that they actually put their muscle behind, and you know they're running a business. They have to make a bet that this book is going to become a bestseller or this book is going to be worth their time and their investment. Um, and so when they make that bet, their promotion and marketing is amazing, but most books don't get that attention. And so an author ends up having to do almost all of the work themselves. In this case, my publisher has done a, a little bit in terms of marketing. Um, I will say that that, and I think this is true of every author I've ever talked to, um, has said, yeah, I wish my publisher had done more. <laughs> um, <laughs> she you know she is running a business and she has other books that she's publishing and she also has a self-publishing arm of the business that she's trying to get up and running so I just haven't seen much traction from her um, I did do one podcast interview that was a, a lovely lovely interview um, that she had connected with the host of the podcast and had pitched me but that's the only press she got for me that's it so all everything else has been because I've contacted people and most of the time I didn't even know them it was just me pitching them and researching and you know reading their work um so what it, it really has been you know 99 percent my uh, my my bag which I think that authors need to understand that and if if you aren't willing to do that um then I think it's going to be a tougher road. Even my friends who have been published with big publishers sometimes have gone out and hired their own publicists, you know, done a lot of their own their own work. It's just, I think it's just part of the industry. You can't just write the book. No, wouldn't that be great? Like, I would love to just write the book and know that somebody was, you know, you know shepherding it and stewarding it out to the public, you know, in, in a way that was, you know, that had some traction. But it... It just doesn't happen. Really, when you launch a book, you're launching a business. And I don't think that that gets talked about enough. Um, it is not really. Like, yes, you're starting a business as, as you, the author. But also, you can think of that book as it is It is part of your product line. Right? And that's how. So for me, being in product development and working in technology and having an MBA, I will say, has been a huge benefit to being an, an author. Um, and I think it's what's driving sales and what's driving promotion is more that I can, I love the book and I love the story, but I can also create some emotional distance from it and, and really do the business planning part of it too, which I think has been, um, has been really helpful. So I wanted to talk to you more about that. How do you necessarily, uh, separate your creative mind from your business mind as you just <laughs> talked about? Yeah, so I'm I'm blessed with a compartmentalizing gene <laughs> that I uh, it really is like uh, some people describe it as right brain left brain. Um, I think because I've spent more of my career in business than I have as an author, it's really my inclination. Even as I was writing the book, um, I wrote a play a few years ago and it was produced in New York and like I could do the creative work, but then the produce as I was writing it. I also always have the idea of I'm the producer, I'm the writer, I'm the publisher. I'm the, like, I can take on that role. Uh, it could be from my theater background, <laughs> how to role play and really think about from a stakeholder perspective, okay, if someone's buying this book or if someone's choosing to invest in it and publish it or someone's going to turn this book into a film, like, like what are they going to need to be able to do um, to do that? What will they need to be able to see? So, for example, um, playwriting is probably a, a, maybe a better example than novel writing, but when I wrote my play, it's one set, 
there is no costume change. Like it's it's very very small, so it's very inexpensive for somebody to produce it. And so I could still tell the story I wanted to tell, but I was very conscious of the physical mechanics of putting it on stage and trying to reduce that investment as much as possible. Now I could have made it much bigger and grander and changing sets and turntables and like it could have been like a Hamilton set, but it like. I felt like, how was that ever going to get produced, right? And so then it's going to sit on my computer and nobody's ever going to see it. And really the motivation for me is always, I want as many people to be in touch with the story as possible. And a lot of times to make that possible, you have to really think about the economics of what it's going to take to convey your story in the medium that you're telling the story in. And so with this book, for example, I was very conscious of, I do not want the book to be over 260 pages because once you sort of hit that threshold and you create a bigger book, it's much more expensive for the publisher to produce. So even in terms of the number of pages and the word count, I was always thinking about the economics and and the cost of producing the book. Um, Or cover art is actually one of the most important marketing elements of a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was a lunatic about my cover art. <laughs> like the first cover that was put together, I will say honestly, like I hated it. I'm like, there is no way that I'm putting that cover on my book. And I told my publisher, I'm like, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> like, And so I actually ended up art directing the whole cover. Um, I did work with the original designer that I was working with, but then I also went and got a second designer <laughs> that drew Emerson, and I would like had all of these like critiques. That, I mean, I was a crazy person with this book <laughs> art, but I and I was like, I want it to be this scene, and this is what's important. And, like these are the colors. Like I really was. I mean, I was so specific as if I was painting it myself because it was in my mind. But I do not have the artistic ability to create that but these designers did but I had to convey what I wanted in words and I just I knew even down to like the font that's on the back cover guys like I was like (laughs) a crazy person um so but I really I knew what I wanted and I wasn't willing I knew what the story deserved and I was not willing to give it less than what it deserved and less than the effort that I had already put into it um and so it was a considerable amount of money from my own pocket to do it so I actually own all of that cover art and all the rights to it my publisher doesn't own it um I wrote the copy for the back cover because they wrote the copy and I'm like no <laughs> like, I don't like this. and so I rewrote it and it's you know a lot of times a publisher could say like this woman's impossible like I'm not dealing with her um which my publisher at any point probably could have but didn't um and I think that the book is is reaping the rewards of being so maniacal about every single facet of it and one thing that I always hear that people, you know, when they first see the book, they're like, oh my God, that cover art is beautiful. Like you look at a lot of like cover art, especially from small presses and you're like, this is horrible. Like who designed that? Um, and so I put so much time and effort and I think it was absolutely, absolutely worth it. That's good. I'm glad to hear that you're happy with it. Um, yeah, yeah. So tell us what the reception of the novel has been like online as well as in person. Yeah. So the reception has actually been really strong. Um, when I, um, we've gotten a good uh, amount of press, some of it local, um, some of it bigger than local. Um, there hasn't been any national press on it yet, which is, uh, I have a very good friend, Dan Fortune. He's one of my best friends. He's a publicist. Uh, he's a, and he does like Broadway shows and cabarets and musicians. And um, he uh, he said to me, he's like, what are your goals for it? And I, 
I was like, I want to be on CBS this morning. <laughs> like, okay, how about we calm down a little bit? Aim for um, the stars. So, like those, you know, and that's what everybody always says, right? Like they want television coverage, they want a New York Times story, like all of these things. Um, and most of the time, it you know, it's a slow burn. You know, a book is a marathon and it's not a sprint, right? So yes, if you, like for a debut author for a young adult fiction novel, I mean, no, it would never have. I mean. It, it never happens like you're not going to get national coverage right away like there has to be some staying power for the book and a lot of times you know one thing that I will say was a little bit frustrating in this process was um and one thing another thing that I think that small presses and authors need to be aware of is that a lot of times people who publish reviews need the actual physical book not even a galley not an advanced reader copy in their hands sometimes like four to six months ahead of the publication date. <laughs> so they need to have the physical book. Otherwise, it doesn't. It, they won't even let it enter their radar. And I think that that is changing. I think a lot of times, you know, in my publisher, it said like, oh, people are used to getting uncorrected proofs. Like they get it, they get it. That, you know, they don't need anything more than that. And I actually found with most of the publications, the bigger publications that I was interested in getting reviewed by, that actually was not the case. They actually wanted the paperback version of the book. Um, they didn't want an uncorrected proof. If they did, they were willing to take it maybe right now, but they needed a fast follow of the book um, to be in front of them. They needed a whole press package. So my, I didn't actually see the, the physical copies of my books until the beginning of October. So it was only a month out from my publication. And so that actually caused me to not be eligible for a certain number of reviews of the bigger reviews now smaller reviews like um, different book bloggers and like local publications and um, definitely for podcasts like podcasts are I think it are a great way to promote a book um, or really like any kind of endeavor that you're doing and they are they are much more forgiving and a lot of times want to see oh is this book actually getting great reviews like is like do people like the book before they even want to showcase it so I have definitely found like there is a long tail to book promotion and book marketing, but for some of those bigger outlets, like you really need to be, it needs to be pre-publication. Um, and so there was a lot of that that unfortunately we missed out on, but I will say, obviously this is not the only book I'm ever going to write. And so for me, all of that was learning for the next books that are coming, whether they're Emerson books or other storylines, um, <clears throat> to really be conscious of how early you have to be thinking about marketing and promoting the book. Mm -hmm. And of course, every book that you write from here on forward will still be linked to this first book. You know, it's, you're an author yes. of several uh -huh. books, so um, they're all together. I, I want to ask you about the review process, right? So, um, yeah. in soliciting r reviews from presses, or not from presses, from you know publications, um, yeah. is it like finding an agent? Do you need to target your you know sends, or is it more just like a, a big email list and pressing send on 500 different blogs and papers yeah, and, and stuff. The, the big email list, um, I did both because I, I wasn't sure. Uh, I had heard different things from different people about, hey, it's worth it to send out a, a blanket release. Uh, my publisher also apparently sent out a blanket release. Um, I have found that that is not at all successful. So all the press that I have gotten has been from targeted pitches, all of it. Um, that I really, I clearly had gone and like read their bio, had read their 
work and knew what they covered, I would also come up with a unique angle. So I was born and raised in the Hudson Valley, which is in upstate New York. Um, and so uh, Hudson Valley One is a big publication that's up there in that area. They cover Westchester and then the whole Hudson Valley. So that's like Orange, Ulster, Putnam County. Um, and so I had pitched the book to them before publication and had said, hey, I'm a Hudson Valley native. My education and my school and my, my work with my guidance counselor was really helpful to me in terms of setting me on a great career path. And this is what I have to say about my upbringing in that area and how it helped me become a writer. And so that was a very targeted, specific pitch. Um, and they ended up writing a really beautiful story, um, which I was very grateful for and actually did a lot for book sales. Um, so it really is, it's interesting that you make that agent correlation. I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're absolutely right that just like you're trying to find a great agent, you're trying to find a publisher who sort of matches your needs and gets what they want as well so that it's a win-win. I think the best thing that an author or really anybody who's creating any kind of product and service that they want to get press for, you have to think about how is this a win for the journalist and then how is it also a win for you? So that win-win scenario matters. It also helped that I was a journalist and that I was getting pitched all the time, not because my journalism connections like helped me get reviewed. I written for the <laughs> Know, for the Washington Post, like the Washington Post has not reviewed my book, <laughs> so it's, it hasn't been like that kind of personal connection. But understanding the person on the other side of that uh, screen, right, who's reading the pitch and having been pitched to a lot myself, it helped me figure out, how, like, yes, that you needed that win-win, and then how to create it in a pitch in a really concise way. Right, and we should say that you haven't been reviewed by the Washington Post yet. Yeah. Yet. Yet. That's yeah. right. Not. Yeah. <laughs> but I would be more than happy to speak to them. Um, I have, you know, and I think that, you know, the other thing that people really have to be aware of, uh, I think this is true as a writer, I think it's true when you're pitching, is you really have to be completely immune to rejection. Like, it cannot matter to you at all. I have pitched, I mean, hundreds of places, <laughs> and most of them <laughs> never respond. And you just have to be okay with that. Or a lot of them have responded saying, thank you so much for contacting me. I'm not interested. Like you just have to accept that some people are just not that into you and it's okay. <laughs> and, and you really, you really have to embrace that because if you get really bogged down with all of the rejection, you will never do your work. You will never find your audience and you will never find the promotional outlets that are right for you. So literally like sometimes I'll get rejections and I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. I don't even remember sending that pitch. Like I literally, once I send it, I literally just move on to whatever is next. And I think that's what you have, you have to do because this field is, is full of rejection and you just have to put it aside and continue to do your work. Yeah. So I want to pivot into the book if that's yeah. okay. Um, can we go back to, you know, when this story first crossed your mind um, and, and why it had such a hold on you and why you had to write it? Yeah, so I spent about five years thinking about the story and two years writing it and then a year getting it through publication. So it had first started, so uh, it was like eight years ago, I actually had an apartment building fire. I was living in New York at the time. Um, one of my neighbors had spilled something on her gas stove and her gas stove blew up and it set the building on fire. Um, I was on the fourth floor, I just got out of the shower, I was like in my kitchen, horsing around doing whatever, and I started to notice my radiator ticking. Then I looked closer at the radiator and like the floor tiles in the kitchen started heaving up and down, and I'm like, mm, 
like this doesn't sound good but i i was not thinking fire i didn't smell anything i didn't see any smoke because she was on the first floor and i was on the fourth floor of a walk-up um in this like old rickety building on the upper west side which ironically is where emerson's story is set maybe not ironically synchronously (laughs) (laughs) um so i grabbed my keys i went out of the apartment to see like what was going on because i knew they were doing some work in the apartment downstairs for me and i was just like surrounded by this black sooty disgusting smoke um and so i i didn't know what was i knew obviously i needed to get out of the building so i like scrambled down these three flights of stairs like ran out onto the sidewalk and I was living on 96th Street at the time, right up, right between Broadway and Amsterdam. And I looked back up at the building, and the whole building was on fire. Wow. Um, there were fire trucks. It was it was very very dramatic. Um, and that that moment was it was very hard for me personally. I ended up developing PTSD as a result of it. I had a, a lot of like mental health issues after that happened. Um, and that those issues actually brought this story to me um and so I I ended up uh, finding another apartment and like staying in that neighborhood and over the course of the next year I had a couple of other things that happened with my family and like personal things that were very difficult I had a a breakup that I went through that was very upsetting um and so I as a way to recover and heal from that really delve into a creative sort of arc Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and that Emerson started to enter my mind at that point. The next apartment building that I moved to, there was a little boy who lived across the hallway from me, and he was just always, like, testing his mother's patience. Like, he was probably four. And he he had so many opinions about the world, and I would run into them constantly in the hallway and in the elevator, and she was a single mom. And it was so interesting to me that he – he just knew what his place was in the world at four years old. He was like the most actualized four-year-old I've ever met in my life. Um, and so he was very interesting to me as a person. And so I started thinking about like, oh, what would a book be like, you know, that might, and, and he, you know, then they would have like tough personal family conversations in the elevator. And I would just be sitting there pretending like I wasn't listening. But of course, like I was listening to the whole thing. Um, and so I think that really helped me. Um, and then also like, that time was just, it was so difficult for me. I was having like lots of vivid dreams. I was like really struggling personally. And this story sort of had a really healing quality to me that I could write my way out of my own difficulties and like my own sadness. Um, and so that, you know, is, is Emerson now. So there was a long arc that happened after that, but that was sort of the first point at which Emerson started to enter my, my mind of someone going through very difficult, uncomfortable things and like digging down deep into her own soul and, and finding a way to belong. Yeah, and I think in, in reading the book, I think I'll go out on a limb and say you were probably also influenced by what you were reading. Um, I, I think, you know, there's an, a, a through line with Alice in Wonderland yeah. in Emerson Page. Um, of course, the name Emerson brings to mind, you know, an author. Um, there's a quote used several times by Rumi. Can you talk about the influence of what you've read and, and how that's impacted this story? Yeah, for sure. So uh, so one of the things that, uh, I don't think this is a spoiler, but one of the things um, <laughs> about the book is that it recognizes the healing powers of books, right, and of literature and of art, right? And that's, that, is very, uh, that is very explicit in 
in the story, right? Like the power of books is, is I would say, the central part of the story and the power of creativity and the imagination. Um, and so I have always been very influenced by what I've been reading. Alice in Wonderland is my favorite book of all time. Um, I live, I lived then and live now very close to Central Park where there's a very famous statue of Alice in Wonderland that, you know, millions of people flock to see every year, <laughs> myself included. Um, and then just on the other side of that pond from Alice in Wonderland is a Hans Christian Andersen statue where he's reading a book, um, to what is supposed to be the ugly duckling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there's also a literary walk in Central Park, which also plays a role in the book and is one of the settings for one of the scenes. Um, so I was very, uh, Rumi has been really influential in my life. I'm also a yoga meditation teacher. And so spent a lot of time, have spent a lot of time with his work. Um, and it really is about, you know, terrible things will happen to people, right? Like they happen to all of us. And so our job really is to make meaning out of those terrible things, but how do we make them valuable? Like how do we make them mean something and how do we move forward from them? And so I think that that is a through line through a lot of literature, specifically a lot of literature that I have read and loved and have gotten me through difficult times. And so I wanted to write a book that would help people do that same thing and would also in many ways be, a love letter to the city that I live in and to the books that I love and the authors that I love that have really been helpful to me. And so the book is also a huge thank you to people who do put their story out into the world, because certainly those, those stories that I mentioned in the book and that I reference, um, you know, have helped me. Um, and I, I wanted to have a physical way to, to say thank you to those people who have, who have taken the time out of their lives to, to write them down and share them. So you talk about, your inspirations for writing the, the novel, um, you're dealing with some mental health issues as well as um, Alice in Wonderland. I wanted to know, it, it's one thing to start a book, right? It's one thing to start writing a story. It's another thing to finish writing a story. Can you yeah. talk about, can you talk about your inspirations as to, aside from starting the story, but actually finishing it and working your way through it um, so yeah. that you can tie a bow on it at the very end? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I spent you know about five years, as I said, thinking about the books. There were like scraps of paper and lists and all stuff all over the place. Um, in 2014, so I actually exactly three years before the publication, so it was November 1st, 2014, I participated in National Novel Writing Month, which is actually going on right now, um, which is abbreviated as NaNoWriMo. Um, it, it happens all over the world. There are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who commit to writing the first draft of a novel in 30 days. So you get 50,000 words down in 30 days. <laughs> um, and so that's what I did. That's how the first draft um, incidentally, I'm participating in it again this year, and I'm writing Emerson's second book, and so I'm about like 15,000 words, uh, almost 20,000 words um, into that book, um, and it's horrible. Like, the first draft of Emerson was terrible, like, let's be clear. Um, it was not fit for reading by anyone, <laughs> um, and so then it was, you know, uh, what is that, 21 months of editing, I guess, um, before it was really ready for somebody to take a look at. Um, and there were definitely, uh, I would never say that there was a time that I thought I was going to give up and not finish this book. For me, it's very hard for me to start something and not finish it. Like I'm really bad at that. Um, and so I'm very, uh, picky about what I choose to begin. And so I knew if I was going to spend, you know, this time getting this novel down, I, I was going to finish it. Like, and I do think that 
it takes that grit and that determination to do it because you'll look at, I mean, there were times I was going back and reading like even later drafts and I'm like, this is horrible. Like no one is ever going to read this. <laughs> like it was just like, I just didn't feel good about it. And I think that's part of the creative process of continuing anyway. And, you know, I have uh, Ed Freeman. Uh, he was one of my professors when I was at UVA getting my MBA. He's, he's an ethics professor. He's written a lot of books. And people ask him, like, Ed, how do you write a book? And he just says one word after the other. Like, <laughs> that's all you can do is it's like you're just trying to get it down. I will say that another thing that helps me tremendously um, is outlining and index cards. And so at least if I could physically chart out I could then do this one little piece and then another little piece. Like I have to break projects down into tiny little pieces that are actionable like day in and day out. I, I am not somebody who can just sort like Stephen King it and like free write a book. Like it, I just, I don't have that kind of brain. So I think um, organizing it and, and getting those pieces down, the index cards, the outlining, the one scene at a time, the one piece of dialogue at a time, um, that really helps. Um, and then the early drafts, when I go back and look at them, they're almost completely dialogue, which could be related to my theater background, where like all you really have is the dialogue. <laughs> you don't have all of these other flowery paragraphs that a novel has, to the point that when my publisher first looked at the book, she was like, uh, is this a play or is this a book? Because it, it had very little of Emerson's emotional life outside of what she was communicating to other people. And the great thing about a novel is that you have this chance to create a whole world and you have a chance as a reader to know the inner thoughts that someone has and the inner feelings that they have without um, them having to say it out loud. And that's not necessarily something that you have in playwriting or in film, you know, in lots of other um, mediums. And so I had to learn how to really appreciate and take full advantage of the novel in that way so that I could get all the bones down and get the dialogue down and the scene sequences down. And then I could go back and layer in the emotional life of my characters or their inner thoughts or like adding details of the setting. So for me, it was, it was really like constructing something like when you do a painting, like you sketch out the outline and you fill it in and fill it in and fill it in until it's exactly the way you want it to look. And that's also how I approach writing a book. So I have given up trying to get it down perfectly and just accept that what comes out, what comes out, and I will fix it all in the editing process. Interesting. So what was the point in time or, or what was the, excuse me, what was the point in time when you knew that you were done? Or has that time even passed? Are you done? Yeah, are you done? Can you yeah. be done? <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say it's interesting because there, there's a prologue in the book now that didn't exist until about four months, until the summer. <laughs> so when you say, like, oh, are you done? <laughs> um, I, uh, F.J. Lennon, as a, he's a really good friend of mine. He's also a mentor of mine. He's an author. Um, and he's published by Simon & Schuster. And he and his 10-year-old daughter, Olivia, read the book. And he came back to me. He said, the book is great, but it's really missing something. <laughs> I was like, what? We're going to publication. What are you talking about? Um, and he said, you need a prologue in there. We have to see a life moment where Emerson's mother is still alive, and we have to know like why Greek mythology and the muses are so important to Emerson's story, because you it's too far in the back, and you've got to move that up front, and you can do 
came up with a prologue, and this is what you need to do. And so he gave me that very specific, and I was like, oh my god, he's totally right. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's, that's a, what I need to do. That's a great bit of advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a great piece of advice, and he um, he has been really supportive and helpful like throughout my writing process as a mentor and as a friend um, and as a fellow author. So I would say that you know I knew that I was done with the book when I didn't feel like I could offer any more to those scenes and that story. Like, I knew that they needed more, but I also needed outside people. Um, my friends Alex and Kelly, who were, were thanked in the acknowledgments, they were my first readers of the book, and they both had very specific feedback for this series, but then also for this specific book that, that, Emerson, uh, that I'm telling with Emerson. So they gave their feedback about what they didn't understand, what wasn't right, the holes that were in the story. Um, and so I took all of that feedback too. So sometimes like you're just too close to the work and that's where I feel like early readers and friends and family and um, you know anybody who's really willing to read the book with a critical eye and not just say, oh, that's great, good for you, <laughs> but can really read it and say, this is what it needs to be better. Um, those people are so important and I'm, I'm really lucky that I have a lot of those people um, who have been willing to take a look at the book early um, and different drafts and offer their feedback. So that was that was really great. Mm -hmm. Now, I know um, musicians and people in that industry don't particularly like uh, to get categorized um, yeah. with their music. Now, I don't I don't particularly know how authors feel, but I will mention that this is probably the perfect book to be classified as science fiction slash fantasy um because i've never it's either been one or the other right now this book right. has a lot of fantastical elements to it with the light um and other themes but it also has a lot of science fiction elements with the fresnel and also the uh built humans i guess or the rebuilt humans with yeah. their machine mm -hmm. as well as uh human aspects so, so i wanted to to mention that, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts on thoughts are on that, um, and how you sort of decided to wrap in science fiction with this fantastical um, story. Yeah, yeah. So I've worked in the the technology field as a product developer for quite a while. So it first started, um, I guess, my first job that I would really classify as technology uh, was like. In 2008, probably 2007, 2008, so after my MBA. So for almost 10 years now, I've been working in technology. Um, I'm really fascinated by technology. So it, a lot of that just comes out of my own interests. Like I read scientific journals about astrophysics <laughs> because I think they're interesting. <laughs> um, I'm really fascinated by space and by astronomy. Um, all through school, I was actually a science and math kid. I was not, I was not an English writer kind of like I had that creative bent me and like I, I loved writing but I had actually intended to go to school for science and technology and math and actually when I went to Penn my first year at Penn was in the engineering school so that per, like professionally I had always thought I was going to go into the sciences I unfortunately had a very a couple of very bad experiences early on in my time at Penn one specifically with a physics professor who told me I had no mind for physics um, and wow. that was pretty upsetting. <laughs> and so I uh, had a tough time when I first went to college for a lot of reasons. My dad had just passed away um, shortly before that. Um, I was in an abusive relationship. Like emotionally, I was not in a good place when I started at Penn. And so when a professor who has won a Nobel Prize says, do you have no brain for physics, you believe them. <laughs> when you are 18 and just starting at school. Right. So I actually opted out of science and I 
you know, went on to, to study liberal arts, and I stayed at Penn, but I went to a different college. But I still always really loved science and loved math, and I was so fascinated by it, even if I wasn't pursuing it professionally. And so for me, writing a book, uh, it was a way, and writing science fiction was a way to, okay, like maybe I can speak to my strengths as a storyteller and as a writer and as an author, which I'm so proud to be, and also still explore all of these other areas that are really fascinating to me. So even though I may never become an astrophysicist, <laughs> I can still have an interest in that and still read about that and research it um, and bring that into my writing. And actually, I hope that this book does encourage a lot of kids to study science and like or, or readers in general. Even if you aren't going to be a scientist in the state of our world today, you have to care about science. It's it's everywhere. It's all around us. And, and every company is becoming a technology company. Our lives mm -hmm. are being taken over by technology. And so it's, I think it's important to have an understanding and an interest and, and a hand in crafting that. And so for me, yes, I wanted to tell this fantastical tale and this hopeful story, but I also really wanted to explore technology and, and science. And so technology and science actually begin to take on a bigger and bigger role for Emerson. Uh, probably a little bit more in the second book, even though that even more than they did in the first book, and then the third book, um, which will be the, actually the last in the series where we sort of see the completion of this story arc, um, will be very, very heavily grounded in science, and science will play an incredibly important role in Emerson's future, you know, as, as an adult when she when she leaves this trilogy and grows up and goes on. <laughs> <laughs> So I also wanted to ask you about the significance of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or the Met as they call it, because um, yeah. I know it has a big significance in the novel. I wanted to ask what the significance of that um, building is to you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so really, I think so many times people want to pit art and science against one another. And so one thing that I wanted this book to show was that art and science are really two sides of the same coin, right? They're still based in inspiration. They're still, they're both imaginative, creative pursuits, right? So for me, um, I live just across the park from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so I go there all the time. Um, and it's a really healing place for me. Um, I love the building itself. Um, I, I love the art that's there. Um, I recently did... Um, a couple of museum hack tours. I don't know if you guys are familiar with museum hack, but they do these very unconventional tours of, of museums. Um, and one of the things that I learned in their Metropolitan Museum of Art tour was that the museum almost failed, right? So they they couldn't get the money. <laughs> you go into certain parts of the museum, you can see water damage because they didn't do a great job of building the building. <laughs> it's really, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. It's one of the most famous museums in the world and it mm -hmm. almost never came to be. Like, they almost went bankrupt. They couldn't get anybody. They couldn't purchase any pieces. Like the art that they originally bought or the, the artifacts that they originally bought, were they bought them for a song because no other museum of any kind of esteem wanted them or wanted to have anything to do with them. And those were the first pieces that the Met housed. Um, so for me, um, I really did want to showcase sort of the journey of that museum and make people curious about art you know the other thing is you know you walk into the mat and it's huge and you're just casually passing by these like one-of-a-kind priceless pieces of art as you're just strolling through um from antiquity <laughs> and it really i think the job of curators and of museum educators like i'm so grateful to them that they have dedicated their lives to preserving this art and making it available 
needs people. I mean, the Met is a place you can go that's donation-based. So if you can't afford anything, you can still go into the Met. And you can just walk right in and, and take this art in and be inspired by it. And so uh, I go there a lot. I have gone there a lot throughout. So I, I first moved to New York City in 1998, um, which is a long time ago, right after college. And I have been going to the Met you know, all these years since. Um, and so it's really, it's really inspired me, certainly as I came of age, as, as a young adult, you know, in the city. Um, and I'm, again, just like I wanted to pay homage to my city and to the folks that inspired me, um, I also really wanted to showcase the Met and then also the American Museum of Natural History, which is also a setting in the book and will actually become even more important in the coming books. Um, because those two museums sit on opposite sides of the park, so they literally face each other across the park. And so one dedicated to science and one dedicated to art. And so the idea was a nature sort of in between them with the park. And I really wanted the book to showcase that that bridge between these two disciplines that are not very different at all, um, that are inspiring to people. That is a very interesting idea. I like that. Thanks. Um, so you mentioned uh, Emerson Page is... Uh, going to be a trilogy of mm-hmm. books. Um, I wanted to ask you what her future is going to be, and will it end at a trilogy? Will it continue, maybe? Sort of talk a little bit about what we can expect from Emerson in, in the years to come. Yeah, yeah. So originally, I actually thought it would be many more books than a trilogy, but as I started to write this second book, I'm seeing that there are lots of overlapping storylines that it, it can actually be done in a trilogy. So some of this is is economically driven of a lot of YA books come out in a series and in a trilogy. I mean, J.K. Rowling sort of broke the mold with these like seven books, you know, some of them being gigantic (laughs) because of the, you know, the the legend that is now Harry Potter. Um, I think that most of the time, like the number three just has such a strong significance, I think, in mythology and religion. Um, actually in science and in art as well, um, this idea of, of a trilogy or, or a triplet or a triplicate. Um, so I do, I do think that this particular story arc can end there, depending upon has, how the trilogy does and the series does, I think she could go on to have other adventures. So I just bought the Book of Dust um, by Philip Pullman. So he did the His Dark Materials books, which were The Golden Compass, um, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass. And so... The Book of Dust just came out 17 years after he completed his trilogy. And he's written a lot of other books in the meantime. Um, but Lyra, who is the, the main character in his book in The Golden Compass and in that his Dark Materials trilogy, um, goes on you know, to have this The Book of Dust. So it sort of occurs in her world. I haven't read the book yet. It's this beautiful book that's like sitting on my desk that I've decided I'm going to like save as a treat for myself when I finish Emerson's second novel. So when I finished National Novel Writing Month, I'll, I'll delve into that book in December. Um, so I think she could go on and have more stories after that. It will really depend upon how, you know, how well this trilogy does and, it, you know, is there an appetite for that and, and when, you know, and when that right time might be. Um, but she will find herself, um, she, her whole story to this point has taken place, um, in New York and below the streets of New York City, where she has a lot of her adventures. Um, in the second and third book, she will actually be traveling to other locations. So specifically in the second book, um, she's going to go to the Alhambra in Spain, and she'll go to Iceland, and then she'll also go to Trinity Library, which is in um, Dublin in Ireland. Um, so her story will take her sort of around the world, 
in the coming books, um, which is exciting because I'm actually going to go to all of those places and do some like on the ground research, which I'm excited about. Not bad. Yeah, it's a yeah. good gig. Um, yeah. So Emerson will become a world traveler. Um, she will. She will. And then in the third book, we'll sort of figure out. You know, people always ask kids like, "Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up?" Um, and we'll we'll actually answer. Uh, Emerson will answer that question by the end of the the third book. Um, and so it's it feels great to have that story arc. There, I'm sure she will have lots of surprising things that will happen. <laughs> there will be surprises to me too, um, as I sort of travel around and um, and do this research and, and write these books. Um, but I think that uh, yes, she will. She will have a, a lot of adventures, um, and some of them, most of them, will be foreign. <laughs> That's great. Well, I think it's safe to say from the both of us that um, we're excited to hear or to read two and three um, after great. reading one because it was very very good. Oh, thanks. Um, so a couple more questions before we finish up, but I wanted to ask, obviously you are writing Emerson number two right now. Um, do you, what do you see your future as an author becoming? Um, do you see yourself writing more novels after Emerson? Do you have maybe some ideas about what those, um, novels will be about currently? Just talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so one thing that, uh, that I'm sort of bringing into the second book is I've had an idea for a while um, for another character and another book um, that I have the title for, and I've written the beginning chapters of. It's called Favors for the Dead. Um, it is uh, it is still in sort of the, the middle grade young adult genre, um, still fantastical. Um, it's actually set in a town that's very similar to my hometown in upstate New York, which is a very small town, very different from New York City. Um, and what I realized in writing the second book is that that main character, whose name is Levi, um, he is an adult in Emerson's world. And so one thing that I'm really excited about is the potential of the Emerson story is a, is a pretty big story, right? And there's lots of different interesting characters and through lines and themes and so even if Emerson just has this trilogy I would like to be able to take characters out of the book and have them go have their own adventures and so I like this idea of creating a whole ecosystem of stories um, and so I think that that is probably the direction that I will that I will go in and but for now, we are recording this November 12th, um, just in time for the holidays. So, Krista, where can yeah. we, where can those interested find your book? Yep. So, it's available on Amazon in paperback and ebook. Uh, it's also available um, through indiebound.org and through barnesandnoble.com. So, you can order it at your favorite independent bookstore. You can go to your Barnes and Noble store. Um, they may not be stocking it in paperback, but you can order it through them, um, and they will let you know when it arrives in store. Um, people can also, um, you know, if they want a signed copy or there's something specific that they want, they can also contact me directly, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to, um, you know, to, to do that. And, or I can order the books directly from the wholesaler um, and, and do that as well. But all of that information, um, if you go to emersonpage.com and go to the shop um, menu at the top of the page, you can see all the places where you can buy the book. Or you can just go to Amazon and just type in Emerson Page and it'll, it'll come up. Perfect. The book is Emerson Page, Where the Light Enters. Buy it today. Buy it today. Yeah. Buy it yes. for your loved ones for Christmas. Yeah. Or That's right. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, so Krista, much. thanks for uh, coming on. This was great. We yeah, appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. I, it was nice to talk to you guys. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have another interview for whenever two comes out. Yes. I'm sure we'll, <laughs> you'll let us know, or we can follow you on social media somewhere. 
Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, it's Krista NYC, and then I'm also on Instagram at Krista Rose NYC, and or you can find me on Facebook too. Cool. A lot of great travel photos on your Instagram. I, I recommend oh, thank those. thank you. <laughs> yeah, Emerson's sort of making the rounds around New York City to her favorite locations, so I've been putting those up. But I'm also, as I, you know, when I go to Spain and Iceland and Ireland for this uh, next book, I'll be posting a lot of those photos. And what I'm hoping to do is actually create a map of what her travels look like and the places that she's been with, you know, different information, um, even around just New York City, um, almost like a scavenger hunt style. So I think there's lots of cool things. You know, I'm thinking about could it be a comic book? Is there an interactive ebook that I could put together um, that would be interesting for readers? So there's no there's no shortage of ideas or, or mediums to put them in. And then of course, like I, w- I would love somehow for it to become some kind of film. Um, so I think once I get through this holiday season, I'll think about how that might happen. <laughs> yeah, and there's more than just writing, right? To bring it full yeah. circle. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. There's always more. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Krista. It's been a, it's been a pleasure interviewing you and having you on here uh, for a second time. Uh, and we look forward to having you on again in the future and best of luck with uh, the success of your new novel yeah thank you so much guys it was great to talk to you thanks for having me you too you too see you later bye